Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Unfiltered, the podcast show where we call it as we see it. I'm your host, Nikisha Prince Haynes, and today my guests will be Mistress Rhonda Baker Stansberry. But before Mistress Stansberry comes on, let me tell you a little about her. Rhonda Baker Stansberry is an American author, singer, and songwriter. Born September 27, 1959 in Jacksonville, Florida, and is the eldest of six siblings. She was professionally trained as a vocalist by Eleanor Boas of Boas Studios and is a force to be reckoned with. Rhonda's solitary, smooth vocal styles song resonates like no other. As a graduate of Barbizon School of Modeling, Rhonda's personal development and self-confidence expanded her development in the business. Rhonda's piano, guitar, and the vocal skills has separated her from the rest. She has co-written songs with Kenneth Andres of Amaze Mix Media, LLC, formerly TWC Music. She has now embarked on her new project, a tell-all book entitled Numbers 35 and 53, The Case of the Brown Paperback. Based on the life of Reketer Frank Price Chico Baker, Rhonda, a straight shooter who believes that there are no great areas in life because it is what it is. Rhonda's work reflects the inspiration she finds in past experiences, day-to-day life, words, and people that inspire her foundation spiritually, the power of positive thinking, the drive to achieve, as well as the belief that nothing is impossible. Rhonda's formal education includes an associate degree from Florida Junior College and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration with a concentration in Marketing, Management, and Human Resource Management from the historic Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, Florida. Good afternoon, Rhonda, and welcome to Unfiltered. How are you doing today? I am well. How are you today? I am grateful. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be interviewing you. <laughs> Thank you. I am excited as well. Nice. So how did you get started in your career? I know you wear many hats, but how did you get started in your career? Well, um, as a vocalist, um, I started at a very early age. My father enrolled me in music lessons, voice, piano, because he had such a love for the arts. And he found out that I did have a talent to sing. And through that, I studied many, many years of vocal, piano, guitar. I touched every instrument that I could touch. Wow, nice. You know, I love music. They said music is life, music is food. You know, when you're down and out and feeling depressed or if you're just confused, you just put on, there's a, there's music for every situation. Right. It, it's, it's just, uh, it's universal. It just yeah. makes you feel so good. And it's so much that I got from my training from Eleanor. Um, I just love it. I love music. So how did you switch, well, I don't want to say switch career, but how did you become an author? Well, um, when I was nine years old, my father was intending on writing a book about his life. And 
he never got that opportunity because God stopped by and got mm. his angel at the early age of 47. So he never got a chance to write the book. So I decided that I would pay tribute and honor to him and I would write that for him. How did you make it amidst all the challenges that you've experienced? Because I know there must have been challenges as a vocalist and also as an author. Well, as as a vocalist, music comes to me. It's just so it's secondary. I mean, it is a passion for me. I've written music. Um, and as a writer, you've got to feel what you, you're writing about. Um, writing music, um, you have to write about what you feel. I never forget one thing that Chris Christopherson said that he never could have written Help Me Make It Through the Night until he had Lonely Nights. Mm. So when I wrote music, I wrote it based on my life and my life experiences, whether they were happy, sad, or in between. And I did the same thing with other things that I have written, poetry, I write from my life experiences. So in writing the book Numbers 35 and 53, although it is based off of my father, it is seen through my own eyes. Whoa. So tell me a little more about this book Numbers 35 and 53 because it sounds like a very interesting book. Okay. What the book is about is actually the lottery. The lottery did not become legal in Florida until about 1986. What my father and his business partners, they ran an illegal lottery. Some people call it bolita which in Spanish, that means little ball. Um, they call it numbers. They have different names for the illegal lottery. One of the things about this game, and we would call it numbers racketeering, is that it paid $65 for the dollar. And this was the thing that was good for people because it was non-taxed as the lottery is heavily taxed. My father was what they called a banker in the game of numbers Bolita, which meant that he headed the operation. And you know, as in the lottery, everybody isn't a winner. So if the number for Saturday, which would have hailed out of Cuba by shortwave radio was 35, which was happens to have been my dad's favorite number, 35, and he would turn around and box that number, 53, mm-hmm. then you could win. My father was a very heavy gambler. He would pay for play four five hundred dollars on a number. Whoa. $65 <laughs> to the dollar. I mean, I, I, I laugh and I tell people I was a nosy little girl. <laughs> I remember at four years old laying on the floor in the bedroom and I listened and I heard my dad tell my grandmother, I just caught for $50,000. How are we going to hide this money? Because remember, the money couldn't be taxed. 
he had no job that was his job running numbers and like I said that's how he came into you know a large amount of wealth and they had to find a way to hide that money so there was a say there were aunts and uncles that you know would help him to hide his money Hmm. (laughs) I know it all sounds amazing It all sounds so amazing because people go to the store and buy a dollar lottery ticket and win nothing, okay? But think about the people that go and it's 20 and 50 and $60 a week and they win nothing. All of that money comes to the banker, which was my father. And if they did not win, that, that residual money was his. Now, he did have a staff of people that worked for him that sold numbers for him, and he would have to pay his staff. He had an actual payroll. Ooh. Like, legit. (laughs) Right. My dad had an actual payroll of about 21 people on staff that he paid. So, you know, we laugh about it now, um, you know, and some of the people are still alive. One lady told me, she said, I never had a job. I always worked for your father. Your father paid well. And, you know, I was born in 1959. I'm 61 years old. So when people were making three and $400 a week in the late 50s, 60s, that was good money. Yeah. You know, I write in my book how... Um, I remember people used to say they would rather sell numbers than go on welfare and get potted meat in a silver can. They would rather shop in the grocery store like anyone else. So they sold numbers. People didn't have a skill set. My dad was actually headed to the major leagues. He was this dynamic catcher. Um, they compared his skill set to Roy Campanella, who was one of the best catchers of all times. So when that tanked, and it tanked due to my father had vitiligo, which is deep depigmentation of the skin. Mm-hmm. So he could not bear the sun in the summertime. So he had nothing else to fall back on. He went to college for a while. But those things were not working for him. And he decided when a gentleman approached him, a high school classmate approached him with the idea of going into the numbers racket. He went home. He said he went home. He talked to his mother. And she said, go ahead. And that started him being a numbers runner, a racketeer. definitely an interesting but there's so much to learn and I, I mean i'm like still trying to wrap my head around it it, 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 was, it was it was different um and it was I, I often tell people when they ask me about it i said when my father was a numbers runner a racketeer bolita king i said this was a business this was not gangsters and guns and that type thing this was a legitimate business 
people worked, they got paid. I tell people, I said, my father was one of the most respected men and still is in this city. Mm. Because he ran a business. It just happened to be an illegal business. But now everybody calls it the lottery and it's okay. So now it became legal. (laughs) Right. Since the government could get their hands on it and tax it. Um, One of the things that I I have to say is people often think that running numbers and running Bolita was a Hispanic thing or a black thing, but that is untrue. It was a thing that a lot of ethnicities, a lot of races of people did. It was just not a black thing or Hispanic thing. It was a white thing too. Learn something there. <laughs> See, you never, every day you learn something new. They say, "Yeah." So, so, Randa, what's one thing you wish you had known before you began your career as an author? I wish I had known that where there were going to be a few people, and it was a very limited amount of people that did not want me to write this book. And the sad and pitiful part about those people that did not want me to write the book were people that benefited from my father's ill-gotten gain. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they they feel badly towards me for writing the book, but I know I did not do the wrong thing. I did the right thing. I wanted to tell the story and I felt like I told it from his vantage point. I interviewed over 30 people um, when I was doing the book and it was, it was so positive. Everybody just had something positive to say. And I kept grilling people and saying, no, I wanna hear everything. No one ever had anything to say, but Frank was a gentleman. Frank was kind. Frank gave away too much money. You know, I I remember as a child, he'd just go to his safe and get five or six hundred dollars out for someone. Like he was giving away a dollar. And at that time, five, six hundred dollars was a lot of money. (laughs) That's a lot of money, you know. He, he, one day he, he was laughing. He said he put the car in the shop and did not realize he had left, you know, $1,000 in the glove compartment in a brown paper bag. And, and that was one of the things they say that um, people who walked around from tavern to tavern, from bar to bar, carrying a small paper bag, they were numbers runners or picker-uppers. So this is why I, you know, gave the book the title Numbers 35 and 53, The Case of the Brown Paper Bag. My father had multiple federal charges lodged against him. Um, The first case was um, against uh, two of his business partners. They weren't really after the business partners. They were after my father. So they called my dad as a witness. And when he would not, as we say, roll over, they charged him with perjury 
for lying and said he did not know them. My father had a stellar attorney by the name of Earl Johnson Sr., who actually was Dr. Martin Luther King's attorney. Oh. Yes. And, well, when you're in the numbers game and you are doing what you do, you go get the best attorney. The first attorney he got, he had this feeling that the guy was working against him and he fired him. And back then, this gentleman charged him a $30,000 retainer in 1962. Dang, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of money. So um, he fired him and he went and got Earl Johnson and Earl Johnson got him off with the case of perjury. But he said to him, he said, Frank, they're gonna be coming at you even harder the next time. And of course, they did. My my dad was one of those people. He lived every day as if it was his last. So my father would wake up one morning and say, hmm, I'm going to go and buy a Corvette. And he'd go buy a brand new Corvette off the showroom flow cash. 90 days later, he said the car was a lemon off of the showroom floor. And he went into what we call Peter Gregg, which is now Brumos, and bought a 280 SL Mercedes Benz. You know, it's very important. There, there's such a life lesson in that, that, you know, it's, it's always important to live each day as though it's your last. And, because you never know what could happen. And I say to persons, if you can't afford it, do whatever you can when you have the time or while you can't. Because you never know what tomorrow you brings. You never know. Yes. You never so, know. Exactly. So I say to them sometimes, if you wake up one morning, feel to eat steak, just go eat steak. Sometimes, you know, it's funny enough. Once I heard a friend said to me that they knew of someone who were, was in so much debt and that person spent every cent they worked for exactly. on a vacation and said you know what to hell with the debt i want a vacation i'm gonna have a vacation and exactly. then soon after the person died and then you're there thinking like okay then when you die the bills die too so might as well you just enjoy life <laughs> enjoy life you know and and that's something that i have had to learn is to start enjoying life you know live it because it's the only one that I'm going to have. Definitely. What's one of your most exciting or memorable accomplishments to date? This book, this book changed my way of thinking. I think this outside of having my one and only child. <laughs> um, yeah. This book because one thing I did was I traveled back over 50 years. So what I tell people is I brought a man back to life that had been dead since 1983. And there were days that it was really hard for me to write about him because I was feeling as if, in fact, I know some of those days he was standing right beside me because I could feel him. I could feel his spirit right there with me. Um, 
but the, the hardest part was when the book was finished, I had to let him go. And that was difficult for me. Oh, but Lord. it made me a better Rhonda. It made me understand that when we are blessed to have someone in our lives and then they are taken so suddenly, I tell people they were only on loan to us. God loaned him to me. And I just thank God for everything. Everything I've learned from my dad. You know, I tell people that when they say, oh, Frank Baker was your father. I said, no, Frank Baker was my daddy. The father is what they list on the birth certificate. Frank Baker was my daddy. Huge difference. It is a huge difference. There was nothing in my mind that he could not do. And even at 61 years old, I still believe that there was nothing he couldn't handle, a problem he could not solve. I I often tell people, I say, my father was so ahead of his time. It was unbelievable. You know, like I said, I grew up, you know, in the early 60s. And I tell people I have never in my life been trick-or-treat, a Halloween. I've never had a costume or anything like that. And definitely was not because he couldn't afford it. My father said that people would poison you. And he was right. People have poisoned children in Halloween candy. But those are just little tidbits and nuggets that he was thinking way ahead of everybody else. That's so, so, so important. You You know, just like you said, it's so important that you have that figure in your life you know whether it be a father a mother you know that you can really depend on and you can say yes I feel loved I feel that you know I'm worth it because that's what makes the difference in your life and that has molded you and shaped you into the person you are today so that you know you're stronger from all the right. challenges oh, and everything definitely. that you would have been through because you know you had that father figure that taught you right and, and, you know he told he told me something when I was 12 years old and I did not have to use that information until I got about 55 years old my father used to say never write anything down that you don't want read because the person will read it repeat it and use it against you and I myself have dealt with a federal case and the person had written something down and I became privy to it and I used that to win my own case so if you don't ever want to see it again (laughs) don't you write it down because I was just asking, Daddy, Daddy, I want a diary. He refused to buy me a diary for that fact only. That's because all of the things were happening in his federal case. People were going through trash cans. They see him stop at a service station and he throws something out in a trash can and the feds would come up behind him and go through the trash can sifting for Bolita tickets, number tickets, 
Yes. So that's why he said never write it down. Keep it in your head. <laughs> you know, it's funny now that you said that because I have a very close friend and for some reason he's always behind me and he said, Nikisha, write stuff down. Write stuff down. Every time you accomplish something or something happens in your life, write it down. And this is years now. He's been telling me to write stuff down. And for some reason, Rhonda, I keep saying, yes, I'm going to do it. Yes. But there's always this tail voice in the back of my head just saying, no, don't write it. You don't need to write it. Keep it in your memory. Keep it in your memory. And, and that's all, that's what I did all those years. Even recently, he said to me, I was telling him about something. He said, did you write it? And I was like, no, but I have it in my head. He said, it's okay to have it in your head, but put it down on paper. And I just don't see the need. I mean, yes, they said it's good to journal, but I don't know. To me, like I function differently. I just don't believe in writing stuff. I, I just write like to keep it in my head. And now that you've mentioned that, it totally <laughs> makes, it makes more sense. sense. Yeah, definitely it did. It freaked me. So now I know I'm continuing the way I am. I'm not writing stuff down unless I want it to be out there. Unless you want it out there. Exactly. So, you know, the, the book is, is, is doing well. In fact, I have a book signing at Epping Forest Country Club here in Jacksonville, which is a very prestigious place. I was invited by a very, very old and dear friend, one of the uh, VPs at uh, Compass Bank. She does a book club and she invited me out for April 3rd to participate in a um, book signing. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that and, and that Congrats. friendship Congrats. that I've had for, for years. But writing is is definitely an art and it's not an easy thing you know i'm embarking on a new book um and it is definitely a challenge nice i'm so proud of you it's funny enough it's funny how we met and you know from it then is. until now we've always maintained that communication even if we don't talk for weeks <laughs> there's still that communication that flows when we catch up it's like we've never stopped talking so you talking. know yeah i'm I'm always proud of you. Who or what would you say motivates you? Self-motivation. I motivate myself. I know I've got to do something. But I have a very, very good um, relationship with my pastor, Irvin Jones, um, and my sisters and brothers at my church. You know, I'm extremely grounded. Um... I do nothing until I go to God. That's you know, That's important. I, I do nothing, you know, and that's just how I live my life. You know, I believe that if I can be a blessing to someone, then I'm going to do that. You know, um, we were raised, my sisters and brothers and I, with morals and values. And one of the things my father used to say, he said, treat people like you want to be treated and you'll have less problems. You know. That's the golden key, golden rule. Exactly. You know, when you when you walk into a place, say good morning. Because the time of day doesn't cost you anything, you know. 
just speak. If somebody doesn't speak back, that's their problem. So true. Like my grandmother used to say, speech belongs to God. So if you say good morning and they don't say it, then that's nothing. You've done your part. <laughs> I, I always try and I, I've instilled, my daughter's 31 years old and she's always comes to me and she says, mommy, you were right. You were right. I said, darling, I'm only telling you what your granddaddy would have told you if you had ever met him. Um, and the way that I was raised, my brothers and, my brothers and sisters and I, so um, I have to keep it real. Great, great. How do you balance your work life and personal life? Um, <laughs> now that is a um, that's a chore, but I have a wonderful <laughs> person in my life that he understands me, and I understand him, and um, I, he knows that I have goals. And my daughter, she knows that I have goals. In fact, my daughter's in business with me as well. Um, she's an artist and um, she writes short stories. Um, so we work really well together. And like I said, every day is a gift. You know, when things bad happen, I just say, okay. You know, something bad happened to me today, but it's not gonna steal my joy. That's you know, important. You know, they may think that they won, but first of all, we weren't in a war or a battle because the battle's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. Man, definitely. You know, so, um, but it's, it's all good. So, Rhonda, how can our listeners connect with you online? Um, my book actually is sold on Amazon. Dot com. You can look for it under numbers 35 and 53, the case of the brown paper bag, or you can just type my name into the browser, which is Rhonda Baker Stansberry. Um, my email address is R-R-H-O-N-D-A-B-S-T-A-N-S at AOL.com. And I'm on Facebook as Rhonda Stansberry. Nice. Thank you very much, Rhonda. It was indeed a pleasure having it you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure. I wish you nothing but success in all of you your future well. endeavors. Thank you. Thank there, you so much. So there you have it, listeners. Don't forget to follow Miss Rhonda Baker Sansbury for more updates about her career. And don't forget to join us next Wednesday at 12 p.m. for another episode of Unfiltered. Be true to who you are always and stay motivated. Mm-hmm.